0: Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today, we're talking about Collateral, the 2004 film directed by Michael Mann, screenplay by Stuart Fady. I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Welcome back.
1: Thank you so much. Hello, everybody.
0: Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Calleros. Hi. So, Collateral, I've been thinking about it, and it might be one of my favorite movies. It's kind of like low key, always been like up toward the top. And now that I've been thinking about it more, actively. I I think it is just one of my favorite movies. It has this really, really great tight script. And I feel like it's one of the best showings of Michael Mann. And there's this sort of like emotional connection I have with Michael Mann. And the first time I saw like Heat and this Mm -hmm. movie and and all these things. Uh, So revisiting this was really fun because it's always fun to watch this movie, but also realizing how much I appreciate it and that it, it continues to age well, is really impressive to me. So, there's all those things that I want to talk about. But the video for Collateral is special for also several reasons. First of all, it was the first midpoint video, which <laughs> need I say more? Uh, but it was also the first time uh, I collaborated with someone else on a script. Brian, this was your first script for Lessons from the Screenplay. It was. Tell us about that. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I had written a, an article about Collateral, which you read, and we sort of were talking back and forth about it. And then you said, John York, Into the Woods, Midpoint, go read this. And I said, okay. So I went and read literally all of Into the Woods and adored it and still come back to it all the time. Then we talked about this moment uh, in Collateral where he goes in to see Felix and he, he makes this change really like life or death situation where your protagonist is has to make a change and he actually might die if he doesn't change his entire change Mm -hmm. in that moment but then obviously in on the macro change his entire life outlook um so we zeroed in on that and uh it's cool because york talks about when the protagonist goes into a cave and gets the elixir of what they need. And he says, you'll be surprised how often it's actually a cave or like some kind of thing. And in this, it's like a club, you know, it's a very different Mm -hmm, thing, but it is like some. he has to like gain entry and go in and then he comes out a different person. And uh, so that was all really fun. And we went back and forth on drafts and scripts and just figuring out how to write an LFTS video. But then one of my favorite things about the the movie then got completely cut out of the video. We'll talk about that later. (laughs) (laughs) So then... (laughs) starting another fun tradition right exactly
1: (laughs) one of my favorites
2: (laughs) so uh so i wrote a blog post which is still up on lessons from the screenplay.com if anyone wants to go read it but it was also what started this conversation of like we've done so much work on this and we're only presenting this one thing to the world it would be great to do something like a podcast where we could Mm -hmm. actually talk about what we didn't get to put in the video and all the other great stuff you know and so we started in the very like early early days saying like maybe someday we do a podcast that's literally just you and me talking about the video and then you and trisha talking about jurassic park or whatever which then obviously turned into let's actually start a for realsies podcast (laughs) um the main reason i've been wanting to talk about this movie and the main reason i was excited about the idea of a podcast is just we literally spend 10 weeks thinking about a movie and then only this Maybe 10% of the stuff we've talked about and work that we've done mm-hmm. shows up in the LFTS video. So the podcast is a nice cathartic way to get everything else out there. <laughs>
1: For sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it, it is fun to finally be talking about collateral. And now we can talk about all those things. And again, I, at some point, I'm going to stop talking about midpoints, but this is <laughs> like this video and this movie is kind of where I discovered the magic of the midpoint because mm-hmm. it is rendered so clearly in this movie. One of the things you point out that the, um, the blog post that you wrote, Brian, is about is that there's a, a midpoint change happening for both the protagonist, Jamie Foxx's character, Max, and Vincent, the antagonist, and that they're both happening like basically around the same time. And that's just one of the many things that I love about the construction of this screenplay is that you have the sort of traditional protagonist journey. He has this whole arc and does this thing but the antagonist is changing, too. Like, they're they're mm-hmm. affecting each other in this really powerful way. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a great construction of, you know, how do you get, you know, we're talking about this a little bit for one of the videos we're working on. And, and Trisha, you've been mentioning of how do you get the protagonist and the antagonist in a tight space yeah. so they have to <laughs> interact? <laughs> yep. And what better way than you're stuck in a cab in one night?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a few movies where the antagonist and protagonist are together like this much the whole time basically yeah
1: i mean it's just a really cool two-hander like i don't know whenever i remember that this was made in 2004 or that it came out in 2004 it feels almost like a 90s like high concept crime thriller Mm. because it's original like so even in the (laughs) you know mid-aughts We were getting reboots, and you know we've talked about James Bond and other like reboots from the uh, the mid aughts and things. And actually, one of the other like really great examples of a franchise that launched and was kind of original is like the Bourne series that came out, you know, right around this time as well. But this definitely has like the original adult crime thing that like you expect from a '90s you know Michael Mann movie, basically. But it's like it feels 21st century. Like, it feels really cool and updated Mm -hmm. and infinitely plausible in, like, a mid-aughts kind of world. And it's just, like, such great character design and such a simple but really wise, like, wise approach to a high-concept kind of crime thriller where it's like, okay, there's two people in a cab, one of them's an assassin, the other one is just an average cab driver. Like, mm. and then you could, it, I mean, you could see every studio exec in the room sitting up going, oh, yes, tell me more. Um, <laughs> but then, yeah, it's just it you'd have to execute it immaculately. And Stuart Beatty and Michael Mann just really do here.
3: Mm-hmm. I love what you mentioned about how it, it's kind of it feels like a 90s movie in the 21st century. That's kind of a great way to think about it. Because as I was watching it, there was yeah, both a nostalgia for mm-hmm. that the, the 90s thing. And and the, even the music too felt like there was some pretty nineties choices in the soundtrack. A little I, bit. I love I love mm. a lot of the soundtrack, but Audio Slave. Yeah. Yeah, there's some like there's like some second <laughs> yeah. half of the movie soundtrack choices that are like a little bit funny. Right. The second half is yeah, definitely yeah. a little bit different. The first half though
0: is very like modern and really cool. Yeah. Like, yeah.
2: I love I'm a big Soundgarden and Audio Slave fan. And Audio Slave is two thousand one or two thousand, I think, so it's like it's not 90s but it's obviously a 80s 90s singer that we know right the moment where it's them driving and it's all digital LA at night and audio slave is playing and then the coyote shows up it's just something about that sequence I'm just like this is like cinema perfection to me it's (laughs) It's just like everything I want
1: like we have to come back to that coyote moment because I guess it was an accident apparently but Mm. it's so like definitive of what the movie is like it's really cool
0: yeah yeah and then like in the first half i mean so so, yeah we can there's a million things to talk about but talking about la and its portrayal of Mm. la Mm -hmm. and just the world like michael mann just gets la in a way that like nobody else does and like puts so much care into presenting it in this kind of strangely magical way yeah Yeah, and i mean yeah so the soundtrack definitely helps you have like groove armada and the roots happening and then there's his choice to shoot it digitally which was Mm -hmm. like a big deal Mm. because it like we weren't at modern digital cameras which are just as good as film cameras like there's a a certain sacrifice that was happening in the 2000s where if you shoot it in hd it's not gonna look quite like a film right but i think because this whole movie takes place at night and it Mm. is this kind of surreal thing it's this Honestly, the only time I've seen this kind of h d employed in a film that didn't bother me right and that mm-hmm. that I think actually uh you know amplifies everything that they're going for and so yeah, just the the way it's shot and the care you know i was, I was watching the making of and they were talking about how many cabs that they had Ooh. because the cab was you know obviously such an important part of the movie they had seventeen versions of the cab <sighs> uh and You know, some were just like hero, the normal cab. But to get these certain angles, like, you know, the front shot where you have the two shot, they would have a rig where, you know, there's black cloth covering the entire front of the cab and it's being towed, obviously. And there's like, you know, cameras set up in the front. And then they had a version where one half of the cab had been sawed off and removed so that you can have people (laughs) shooting from that angle. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the other half. And so there were just all these like permutations of slicing up this cab to get these like amazing shots and and have it feel like you're really there in LA at night because they were right.
2: because they didn't do any
3: actual like green screen type right. stuff right, it was right. right. somewhere out, Alfonso some Cuaron
2: is going no they just don't have a top half at all and just add it later <laughs> <laughs> right. right
1: no but yeah it looks great like mm-hmm. that's the thing is that I was you know it's a huge pet peeve of mine when people look like really well lit in cabs and mm. you can like see Tom Cruise's face when he's sitting in the back seat. It's very believable kind of light bleed as it like right. moves across his face. And as it like sort of filters in from the front of the cab and like from around the sides of it, I don't know, maybe you'll just send me whatever like making of thing that you were reading or watching Michael. Cause I need to know more about how they lit the interior of this cab mm. to look so cool.
0: It's I mean it's they were talking about how they also lined the entire and in, like interior of the cab anything that wasn't on screen with like velcro so that they could have these kind of special I think LED panel lights which cool. was like crazy revolutionary in 2004 that they could just velcro these certain kinds of lights with the right color temperature and put them exactly where they wanted to achieve that kind of effect so there's like a crazy amount of meticulous detail happening that really paid off in, in this is for sure
3: Mm-hmm. Going back to the kind of the digital versus film moment that this came out in, I do remember it was early enough in that digital revolution that it did bother me the first time I saw it. Like mm-hmm. watching it again, I actually really love the look of the film, but back then it really was rare to see a film that was shot digitally that was not like a Blair Witch project that was trying to be right, right, is like, like a full-on thriller. Mm-hmm. And and there were certain moments early on in the film. I think when Tom Cruise is like. First arriving in LA, not at the airport, but like the next time you see him, there's almost mm-hmm. like kind of a weird motion blur happening with like the night photography, and mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. like, no, wait, like why do you do this? Like, why are you doing this, <laughs> Michael? Man, like just shoot it normally, like a normal film. <laughs> um, and, and so it was. It's funny. I think the first time I saw this, I actually was taken out of it a bit because I was so like taken aback by seeing a Hollywood movie shot this way. Um, and now it's like so normal. Now it's like everything's shot digitally. It, it's actually the the special thing is if a sh- movie was shot on film still. Mm-hmm. There is a different digital quality, even when you, when you get up to like, now it's blurring more and more. But for a while, even when the digital cameras were getting better and better, there's there was still a difference. There was still like a different vibe and a feel. And it was weird. In 2004, it was actually still quite jarring to be presented with a... Like a not home video that had that feel, right? But now revisiting it, I love the way this movie looks, and I love mm-hmm. the colors. I love the yep. way mm-hmm. I actually like they—they. It's they really leaned into the way light and color was captured by this camera, yes. Um, and just like embraced it, and whatever they did in the color grading, I don't know, it just works. Uh, so. So good choices. <laughs> it's again watching and, and
0: listening to Michael Mann talk about like you know he knows what kind of gases and what kind of you know these these street lights in L.A. have this kind of mercury halogen thing in a bob, but in this area it's this kind, and we wanted to get the exact right kind of paint for the cab so that when it's in this kind of light, the cab would look this color, and then that. So there was like a blend of all these different kinds of paints so that the cab would turn exactly the right color they wanted and the exact right part of the like it's that's pretty cool i
4: love it
1: so much That's no, pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> well and that's the thing is that you know you, we were talking about how this is like such a quintessential la movie and having the like spatial awareness and just like la kind of grime and grit and also glamour i suppose like in your bones in the way that like this movie does is so rare because I feel like we get, and I'm sure New, I'm sure this like pisses off New Yorkers too, where you get filmmakers who are not from a city, they show up and they're like, here, this building looks cool. And they don't know what that building is or like its history or like kind of what it represents or like a certain block of the city and how the like city kind of fits together and, and breathes, you know? Uh-huh. And- You can tell, like, I don't know, just as people who live in L.A., when you get a filmmaker that's not from L.A. that's trying to do like a quote unquote L.A. movie, Hmm. it's like, get out of here with your, you're like, you just think that sign is cool. But like, we all know where it is and what it is and like all of its, I don't know, nuance about that corner that it stands on. Um, And yeah, this movie is so sharply observed and drawn.
2: Although then there is the issue where you watch collateral or drive and they're like, well, we made it from, you know, echo park to Venice in 20 minutes. Yeah. You're like, no, you didn't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or the first few seasons of 24. <laughs>
2: uh-huh.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> well, so I think just to kind of continue this conversation about Michael Mann, Cause I, I, so I was introduced to him as a filmmaker uh, by my brother, uh, sort of around this time. And my brother is, much older than me. And so I like went to visit him in Seattle and he was like, I'm going to show you like real cinema. Like it's time, you know, (laughs) I was sort of like in that 16, 17 year old uh, phase. This all also reminds me that I mentioned in our Apocalypse Now episode that it was my dad who showed me the hearts of darkness Mm -hmm. making Mm -hmm. of uh and at the time i was really puzzled by that because i was like there's no way my dad knew any of that like that doesn't make sense it was actually my brother who sat my dad and i down just so my brother was actually the one that instilled me with all of this like the deep cuts of of apocalypse now and michael Mann. so sat down watched heat and he kind of explained to me like this is like michael Mann, it's all like real he had them like actually practice bank robbery things and like the gunshots are real and like al pacino and robert de niro (laughs) had never been in like the same scene together and so it's like a really big deal uh and so he sort of got me on this like michael Mann train but then i feel like michael Mann has sort of also been kind of hit or miss like some of those movies Mm -hmm. like this i like and you know ali i appreciate a lot um, and Heat is really fun, but like is also kind of like sleepy and hard to watch a little bit now. <laughs> like it's definitely hardcore nineties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but so diving into this and kind of understanding more the kind of director he is, he he has a lot of Fincherisms, like things that I really appreciate about Fincher. It's interesting to see when they are applied to the right story and the right context mm. how they are. Uh, just perfectly suited for it, and I think collateral is that because it's this you know study of L.A., which he spent a lot of time uh, you know living in and researching for Heat and his other previous movies. And apparently, he drove a cab, and his like brother drove a cab, and his family started a cab company way back. Wh- so like, he has this cool. intimate knowledge of like what it's like to be a taxi driver, also. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's just very meticulous and. The actors were talking about doing like 70 or 80 takes and kind of that Fincher thing where it's like, it's really fun at first. And then at some point, you're kind of beaten down emotionally and you're just doing stuff. But that's Mm -hmm. when it becomes real. And, you know, sometimes that's what you want. Sometimes it's not the best approach. And then kind of the last thing that struck me was how into the character's backstories he got, like he really Mm -hmm. pushed for rehearsals and like during the audition process, really like really working it with actors and, you know, he and Tom Cruise spent weeks talking about Vincent's backstory and, you know, Michael Mann showed up and he was like, listen, so his mother died in childbirth. And when he was two years old, he was in this place. When he was at five years old, he was here. And this happened and had this like extensive biography. Mm-hmm. And so it's that case where it's like that obviously did something, because when you, <laughs> right. when you see Tom Cruise staring out the window thinking, you're like, wow, he's. Is- <laughs> he is thinking right now about yeah. something but but it always begs that question for me of like how much is too much like mark buffalo saying like i spent like three weeks learning how to shoot a gun realistically i don't fire a gun in this movie right yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's just that that director thing that sometimes it seems to really really pay off but maybe sometimes it's a little bit overboard so
2: hey part of it's just like it's the fun of it it's like if we are working on this project together for six months or however long, like it's enjoyable to sit and talk about Mm -hmm. these things and come up with these things and sort of have these fun little fantasies together, which then sometimes don't show up on the screen at all. And sometimes make you realize, well, maybe the character wouldn't do that. If, if we do agree about this thing, about their backstory, maybe they would do things a different way. Why, you know, why doesn't Vincent kill Max here? Well, maybe because, you know, like things like that, where I think it's, Part of it's probably just keeping yourself from going crazy when you're when you're working on a project for so long. But I think some of those things then do pay off. uh, And then some of those things are, like you said, probably just unnecessary, but you don't know. So just diving into it, you know, as fully as possible, I think, is is admirable as long as everyone else is okay with it. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
0: I'm a big fan of productivity nerds. There's a whole group of people out there who have found ways to hack their brains in ways that make them actually be productive. For anyone who wants to be doing more, but keeps finding themselves distracted or procrastinating, learning from these productivity nerds can be immensely helpful. There are, of course, some people out there who are just naturally workaholics and might not think they need these hacks, but it's not just about being productive, it's about being productive in a healthy way. One of the best productivity nerds out there is Ali who who's recently created a class on Skillshare all about the principles of productivity. Skillshare is an online learning community where millions come together to take the next step in their creative journey with thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people on topics including illustration, design, photography, freelancing, writing, and many, many more. Ali is a Cambridge Medicine graduate working as an FY2 junior doctor while also being a YouTuber running a company doing a weekly podcast and newsletter and, he claims, maintaining a social life amidst all that. His class, Productivity Masterclass, The Principles of Productivity, can help you figure out better ways to think about productivity, so that you have more control over what you get done. And it's just one of the thousands of classes available on Skillshare. And if you use our link, Skillshare.com slash beyond the screenplay, you get two free months of premium membership. Once again, that's Skillshare.com slash beyond the screenplay. Thanks to Skillshare for sponsoring beyond the screenplay.
3: I do feel like whatever they did paid off in this movie, because Mm -hmm. I think, like tom cruise as vincent is such a yes. wonderful just like match of like performer and uh character and just the way he embodies that character from the first moment he's you know in that cab is so great and it's so much mm-hmm. fun and and jamie fox is amazing as well like he really embodied this guy who doesn't have confidence who who really is unsure of himself in a way that jamie fox in other roles is the super confident guy and so both of them inhabit these roles like in a really deep way so that when they're together, there really is that electricity of mm-hmm. it's like yin and yang, these opposites. Uh And I just, man, it's like, it's so refreshing to just be able to watch like extended scenes of two people talking in a car
2: and be like that riveted, you know, that doesn't yeah. happen very often. Right. Yeah. They both, both Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx have to sort of play multiple dimensions of these Characters here you know you don't just have good guy bad guy you have Jamie Foxx who has to be the sort of frumpy Max but then make this transition throughout the course of the film and then you have Vincent who like you know Tom Cruise is not w- one of our most uh, rangy actors <laughs> you know he put <laughs> no. often plays. What, not one. You don't think he's. You think he's one of our most rangy actors.
1: <laughs> I just think he has more range than he tends. Like I think he he tends to get offered projects and and often takes projects that are like more limited in their range. Right. But I actually think he has quite a bit of
2: range. Sure. Um. A, a friend and I once got in a very heated argument until like two in the morning, where like we literally had to text each other later and be like, "Are we okay?" Where <laughs> we came back from seeing Tropic Thunder and. Okay. I thought he was good in it and he thought he was great in it. Tom Cruise was great in it. Wow. And somehow our argument was like we both basically <laughs> agreed. But my argument was, was if you're playing this character who is so different from you, like looks so different from you, he's fat, he's balding, he's you know, all this kind of stuff don't just play him as tom cruise which is exactly what he does with les grossman Mm -hmm. and and my friend was like but he's you know he's no he does exactly what you do acting is about being true to yourself i'm like all right relax but like we just (laughs) went on this um where to this day yeah exactly (laughs) um but my point about vincent though is that like we are used to seeing tom cruise as this sort of good guy hero right and with Vincent, you have the way he embodies this character, even just like the costuming, the hair, all this kind of stuff. But the way Tom Cruise has this just scowl and this negativity to it. But again, it is three dimensional. It's not him going, I'm playing the bad guy, so I'm going to be like this all the time. It's mm-hmm. you do see this regular cool guy here, but then you also see this this darker, cold thing underneath it, you know, Um And uh, yeah, so both characters have to have to be a lot of stuff in this movie because, as you said, Tricia, they're just on screen the whole time.
3: Another thing that really works with the casting of Tom Cruise is there is a legitimately likable and kind of charming side of Mm -hmm. Vincent. He's really likable when he's giving kind of actually good advice to Max when he's helping Max out with his asshole boss. Like there are these moments where he's actually it's fun to be with Vincent, <laughs> mm-hmm. but then it, it's even more kind of shocking. Cause you kind of get into that comfortable Tom Cruise territory of like, Oh yeah, he's like the fun, cool guy when he just says something so like bleak and cold and mm-hmm. like, he's really got no like empathy. It, it actually kind of hits you harder cause it's coming from Tom Cruise. It's like, wait, but you're supposed to be kind of a good guy, but this character, he, he can make that, that turn in, in a second to just no empathy, no value of human life. Just, I I don't care.
1: I think one of the quintessential sequences that demonstrates exactly what you're talking about, Alex, is the scene where he handcuffs Vincent to the wheel. And that's the scene where he's telling his boss, you know, that like he's basically telling off his boss and he forces him to tell off his boss. Mm -hmm. Max absolutely doesn't want to and is scared to do that. That is immediately followed by he goes in to kill somebody, right? And then Max starts honking the horn and then the muggers show up. Mm -hmm. And then Vincent has to kill the muggers, basically, because they take his briefcase or it's like that exact like right when we really start to like Vincent, where we see him like empowering Max and we're starting to think, okay, he's maybe a good guy, like in a way he's looking out for Max. He's like giving Max all of this, like, yeah, really good advice. And it's pretty fun and entertaining, you know, that entire like bit that they're doing where they're talking into the radio. <laughs> right, but right. like, yeah. the muggers are really interesting because they are bad guys. Mm, so like, right. you know, if if Vincent had killed the policeman that pulled him over earlier, we would never like him ever again. Right. But the fact that the like bystanders that end up being the collateral in that scene, I'm very sorry. Um, <laughs> the fact that they are muggers, right? Like Jamie Foxx, Max was trying to get them to help him. And instead they preyed upon him, him. right? Mm -hmm. Vincent inserting himself into that situation. We see like the kind of callous taking of human life in almost like it's chilling, but it's still almost a good thing because it creates this morally gray landscape that Vincent is operating in. Mm -hmm. But it, it still gives us that full range of like personable and not warm but like charming all the way to killer. And yet it's in this landscape where we can't exactly place him comfortably um, as like good guy or bad guy per se. It's a really important sequence, even though it doesn't actually do anything for the plot. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think it's followed by the jazz club sequence, right? Is that yeah. is that chrono- chronologically so, afterwards? Wait, Later. Okay. Yeah. 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 Cause that, that is, I think even a harder right turn, you know, where it's like, wow, we're really making Vincent 3-dimensional here, like we yeah. you know, he's he's a full person who like cares about jazz and music and mm-hmm. like genuinely wants to like give a tip to the, you know, the trumpet player. And mm-hmm. then it's like, no, that's his target. And he's basically just like having a good time before he shoots him.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned that, uh <laughs> The, the big thing, Vincent's arc, was the big thing that I wanted to put into the video. So I remember reading uh, Into the Woods and John York, again, talking about midpoints, and he actually mentions The Godfather as having one of those pivotal midpoints where Michael kills those two guys in the restaurant. But in this case, it's not going into the cave to get the elixir to make you the hero. It's making mm. that choice that is the point of no return that is going to set your downfall into motion, so that always stuck with me as sort of like he, York talks about a tragic arc having being sort of upside down from from a traditional Freytag's pyramid arc, where it's like the crisis is the moment of hope, and the midpoint mm-hmm. is like the the worst thing that they do, and so then that always stuck in my head. And then, of course, later when I saw Sunset Boulevard again, I thought, ooh, that's exactly what happens here. And that's why I wanted to make the Sunset Boulevard video where Joe at the midpoint kisses Norma. And that's sort of the point of no return for mm-hmm. his character also. But then there was a the big thing I thought about with Collateral. I was like, you have an antagonist who is on screen so much that he actually has this complete arc. He has this facade that he's this cold killer. But then you see these moments of... um of sort of compassion, you know, with Max's mother or the, the, you know, jazz. And even when he kills Daniel, it says like he puts his head down gently, almost with almost regretfully. Like he actually Mm -hmm. just this little glimpse of, I I wish I didn't have to do that. And then of course the fact that Vincent doesn't just kill Max when Max becomes increasingly inconvenient. 100 different
1: times when he really probably (laughs) should. like, right.
2: (laughs) And uh, so, yeah. So uh, the, the thing that I thought was, was really cool is that you have this positive arc and this negative arc and they each have a midpoint there is that moment where like you were saying alex like oh he's just having fun until he kills it it's like i genuinely believe that vincent wants daniel to live like he wants to right he he wants himself to be the kind of person who would let this happen but then he makes that choice and you can see after that point in the movie you don't really see a lot of compassionate vincent anymore you see i am the cold calculating killer And then, of course, you get that beautiful moment at the end where he's dying and he says, guy gets on the subway, you know, dies. You think anyone's going to notice like you think anyone's going to care. And it's sort of his his little line of regret about I, I recognize now that I I made the wrong choice. You know, there's this moment where where Max says, you're low, man, real low. And he says, why are you the way that you are? And Vincent doesn't have an answer. And it's so it's sort Mm. of you you really it's not like, you know, Vincent doesn't have some monologue about like, I realize now that I made the wrong choice. Thank goodness. (laughs) Right. Of course. (laughs) But it's this but it's this very subtle but powerful thing that he goes through this full change and and has this this sort of little glimpse of recognition at the end that he that he maybe made the wrong choice.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and like, that's what's so cool. I'm, I'm skimming through the movie right now so I can remember ex- the exact <laughs> chronology of this. Yeah, it, it's such a cool moment. And it is, as you pointed out, Brian, like the midpoint for Vincent and the midpoint obviously being, you know, the classical midpoint is the the protagonist, the, the central character kind of uh, understanding the truth for the first time. Mm-hmm. And then, like you're saying, Brian, like it's what they're going to do with it that kind of determines... The rest of of the movie, and, right. and for Vince Vincent, it is this moment where he could let this person live, but he doesn't, and that sort of steals his fate. But I do think there is, you know, there's that that quick shot in that moment after he's killed the trumpet player, where he sort of like has to like shake his head a little bit, uh like mm. you can see, like you were pointing out, Brian, this this moment where there's something has been disturbed a little mm-hmm. bit here and like awoken in a way that is uncomfortable to him. Mm-hmm. I, I think there is a like. He has to then double down on this coldness and returning to his sociopathic ways, but he continues to not kill Vincent. Like there, he continues to you know you Max. Or sorry, he continues to not kill Max, <laughs> even when Max you know
3: throws his list over mm. the side. Like so what a great as scene. Right. That, they could, right. that should be the moment where he right. kills Max. Right. Yeah. Like- <laughs>
0: and so there does seem to be this like weird connection and and you know michael mann and tom cruise kind of talk about it it's sort of supposed to be vague but for me watching it it, it does feel like maybe vincent has found a little bit of human connection here with max and you know for he sure. even saves max quote unquote from mark ruffalo like surprise mark ruffalo that, <laughs> <in this movie.
3: laughs> like I love Mark Ruffalo so much, and that's such a, like a moment of hope for Max yeah. when oh he's like, God. "I believe you. I know that you're the good guy. Like, I'm gonna help you out." It's just right. like so shocking and heartbreaking right. when it and it and it's such a great character moment because it's like you now are really upset at Vincent, and and like you're in Max's yep. perspective of like. I can't believe you just did that. Like the movie was just going to throw Max a bone and you just destroyed everything. Right. It's
2: well, it's a little, the the no country thing where it's like, they use your expectations Mm -hmm. to, to mess with, to put you in the character's headspace where we've been following fanning this whole time. Uh, And so because we've the same way, because we've seen a Western, we know in no country, like the good guy is going to get the bad guy at the end, or we've seen a superhero movie. Or they're at least
1: going to face off.
2: Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Or we've seen a super superhero movie. So when the Joker tells us his backstory, we're like, oh, okay, good. There's a backstory. And then we're like, oh, wait. And because we've seen an action movie, right. like, oh, the cop is going to show up at the end and save the the helpless hero who can't obviously face off against this this killer. And you almost don't even need the fanning character. But I think that adds this urgency to the story where they're always one step behind. But then it does pull the rug out from under you when he dies because you're like, oh, crap, it really is just Max now. He has to. Yeah save the day i was
1: thinking so much about this the most recent time that i was watching it and it is so brilliant to have this b plot with fanning where we're following him around and he's doing detecting and he's trying to puzzle it out first of all without the b plot with him you wouldn't there wouldn't be enough in this movie right Mm -hmm. like it's amazing to watch these two characters go head to head um and like influence each other and like drive around on this on this one long night in los angeles if you didn't have the fanning character it would just feel too sparse so it makes it like fills it out makes it increasingly interesting it gives you um, some
2: moments of like respite yes. before yeah mm-hmm.
1: right and, and
3: it also fills in the the details of like what's really going on exactly. here in this world you know the story
1: yeah exactly like we don't necessarily care who these five people are they're getting killed but there it does like you know, kind of, yeah, shade in what otherwise would be kind of sketchy in terms of plot. And it rescues Vincent and Max from having to do heavy expository lifting.
4: Right, yeah. Right.
1: So it does save, so like, we just like offload all of the exposition onto this other character who's trying to puzzle out the plot in the same way that we are. And it allows the characters just to do character-y things in this sort of like vignette-structured kind of evening that does build, right? But it is like, takes us through all of these different places and worlds but then killing fanning is so smart and cool because otherwise you have it it's exactly what you just said Bri. like we are counting on him to save max we are so invested in this idea that he is going to save max or that at least like he's going to like team up with max right mm-hmm. like even if he has to like you know Break up, break protocol, or whatever, that he's going to team up with Max in a way to get him out of there, and then just boom on the sidewalk, and he's gone. It's so cool.
3: Because I think it's important. they also set him up as the only cop who has the theory that Max is not Vincent, right you know, because all the other cops see him present himself as Vincent at the club, so they're just like, oh yeah, this must be Vincent. Mm-hmm. and And to take away the one person in the universe of the movie that like believes you. Is always ultra painful because yeah. it's like, oh, there's an ally. Thank God there's an ally. Nope, no ally. It's almost Shakespearean,
1: the like mistaken mm-hmm. identity mm-hmm. stuff where like right. one, the good guy has to pretend to be the bad guy and everybody thinks it or yeah, it's cool.
0: That is the one part that feels a little bit like a stretch to me is when like Mark Ruffalo immediately is sort of like, you know, there was this other case where like that one guy <laughs> never quite believed that it was the right driver. And it's like, okay, well, that's convenient but like cool that like what it what it accomplishes is worth that little bit of a stretch of like okay it works for me i don't
1: think that's a bigger stretch than the cute lawyer who got in my cab earlier today he's the last person that you are going to kill
2: to be fair that's why they're both in the same place at the same time but it is a coincidence right i mean it's it's also you know that
0: she's also that interested in like going out with like the cab driver that she met is sure like another but like all this happens yeah. early enough on that right. it's like you know it's first act forgiveness time. I mean,
2: we've already shown jason them from the transporter like they're not asking you to believe in this movie full right. fully you know sure. Super random. <laughs> the other thing i love about
0: the, the scene where fanning dies is that it, it's a party scene and yep. i've talked before about <laughs> how i love scenes. my party <laughs> scenes and a lot of that stems from this where it's like this crazy club and you have the Paul
3: Oaken fold like ready steady go right. uh,
0: and
3: so it's just like I this is like a genesis of so many Michael things. watching this movie again I was like half the things that were happening during our year of finite films feel like they came out of, this <laughs> Straight out of collateral. This is, like, very formative, but I just I just love again
0: how dramatic parties can be because it's like you know, there's murder on the dance floor happening, right? You're in this crowded public place. So like stakes are super high, but there's so many people that you can like move in the shadows also. So like you can have all these people in super close proximity and not know that they're in close proximity. And then when it explodes, it's going to be even crazier because there's all these innocent bystanders around and you can have cool club music happening while you're doing it. Like it's just, It's just so much fun. It's what movies are made for. If it was in the rain, it'd be better.
1: And we can agree that Tom Cruise lying on his back, firing a gun between his knees at people is the coolest. It's just the coolest (laughs) thing.
2: Pretty cool. (laughs) I would definitely shoot my kneecap
0: off. (laughs) You know, they had Tom Cruise, of course, do the like several months of training and stuff. But he was so good that like actual training courses for like professional like police or army or whatever use clips from collateral like that the alleyway scene where tom cruise like takes down those two guys in Mm. 1.3 seconds they're like this is the most perfect example you can find of someone doing this technique and like of course it's tom cruise tom cruise was was this pre-john wick though it was pre-john wick because it might not hold up anymore
2: (laughs) but still pretty damn good yeah But since you mentioned uh, Annie, Jada Pinkett Smith, like I just, uh, I really love her in this movie, just her performance. I think that like- She's lovely. She has eight minutes. I wrote, when I wrote an article about collateral, I said she has eight minutes to make us fall in love with her and she doesn't about eight seconds. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. most movies- When you have like a minor character, and I mean like minor, minor, like more minor than she is in this, you usually see them three times, rule of threes, you know, show up in each act for like a little bit. You're like, okay, I'm following this, like these very one dimensional story or whatever. And she only shows up twice in this movie. She's gone for like an hour and a half, but. One, just from a writing standpoint, she is such a presence in this movie because she is this, she represents this thing that Max needs to do to change his life. Call that girl. No, I'm not going to. Whatever, you know. Exactly. And of course, there's some cute little ICU screenwriter kind of things where it's like, call that girl. Well, he has to call her at the end like for a different mm-hmm. reason. Right. Yeah, or yeah. He, he got lucky with the lights. And then at the end, he, you know, kills Vincent by getting lucky with the lights. Like, like right. adorable. Um, <laughs> but uh, I love it. Yeah. It's a credit to the writing that. Annie is this presence throughout the movie, but it's also a credit to her performance in those in those that eight minute scene or however long it is. That I'm just like I, she's unforgettable, you know. And in, in, in this little, this little, just one scene.
0: And it is it's kind of a bold choice to have it be that long, like spend that much time yeah. with just like this character relation thing. And and it it's obviously super important for all the reasons you just said. But that is kind of a risk. Yeah, it, it was cool again seeing you know the footage of. Michael Mann, Jamie Foxx and Jada all uh, rehearsing that scene and, and trying to like really like nail it because they knew how important it was. And it was another moment where like one of the things that I think works so well in the characterization of that scene is that you have her playing a lawyer, but a sort of the same way you were saying tom cruise isn't like just a two-dimensional like villain there's Mm -hmm. like complexity happening Mm -hmm. she's not just like i'm a high-powered lawyer and like i'm gonna win my case it's like she gets to reveal this like vulnerability and like Mm -hmm. i love this thing but it scares the hell out of me and it goes through all this and it i think that was all in the script but it also was um like amplified because Michael Mann had all the actors go and spend time with people that really do all these things. So Jamie mm. Foxx sat down with actual LA cab drivers that had been doing it their whole lives to like hear stories and understand what it was really like. And same thing with Jada Pinkett. She actually spent several days kind of shadowing the super high-powered attorney to hear all like what the actual experience was like. And one of the takeaways that I thought was really cool is that it doing that kind of research can reveal the sort of contradictory nature of things that you can only find in real life where like you know mm-hmm. truth is stranger than fiction so rather than being a high-powered lawyer that's like i have a cool case tomorrow and i'm gonna win it and i'm confident all the time you get this moment of like i'm great at what i do but it's also terrifying and and i feel like that helps round out these characters and make them feel Believable in a a really cool way, so that when you realize that she's back in the movie, it is like all of that comes flooding back, and you're like, "Oh, okay, right, that happened." Okay, let's do this thing. Yeah,
1: and I love in that scene. I was gonna say exactly what you're talking about. That vulnerability is so critical to them forming a like believable connection, right? Where Mm -hmm. they're kind of being real with each other a little bit in a way that is really hard to do between strangers, right? Because We all know, like we've talked to strangers, it's, it's very hard to get real with a person under most circumstances. And so, and at the same time, if you know, you're never going to see that person again, there's sometimes an opportunity for honesty. And so you kind of have to, to like position that conversation right in the middle of that, where it's like, you might as well be honest with this person. You probably are never going to see them again. If, it feels like sort of safe to do so. And, and one thing that I really love about her performance, uh, Bry, as you were mentioning, is that there's a lot of space in it. And like, same thing with Jamie Foxx here. There's these long kind of pauses mm. where, or they just, you can kind of, cons- you see them considering, do I answer honestly? Or do I just like dismiss this? Like how much farther do I want this conversation to go? Is this person someone I can be? honest with is that is that going to be dangerous what are the potential risks if I do like what, what's at stake here and even to the point where when she gets out she doesn't immediately give him her business card right and like he doesn't ask for yeah, it and he feels I like love yeah he, I love it feels like he's like oh man I blew it you know and you can see him kind of like oh, I'm, I don't know how to get anything that I want in my life um, <laughs> and then she comes back and offers it to him and but that's like a well it, at that point it's been like hanging in the air, right? Are these two mm. going to like exchange information and whatever long enough where you can, you can see both of them considering that as a possibility for quite a while before uh-huh. it happens. And then she comes back and gives it to him through the window. And even her like fumbling ex- explanation of I like, her here you might I love her performance in that moment. Need, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great dialogue. Well, well delivered.
0: Hmm. Well, it helps that they've performed together before um, because as we all know, we've all listened to Big Willie Style, the album, several mm-hmm. times and mm-hmm. know that in the interludes, Jamie Foxx plays Keith B. Rizil, interviewing different people at the red carpet of the premiere of Big Willie Style, the album. And So it, is this
2: bit. where Michael Bank gets all of his actors from? I
0: think so. <laughs> I think it's just Will the Smith, of people in yeah. Big Willie Style.
3: But... Just referring to that uh, that that sequence <laughs> with with Jada Pickett Smith and Jamie Fox, like I wrote a few notes during that sequence of just like if this was just the movie, I would be happy. Mm. Also, like yeah, but yeah, I just had a big smile on my face watching this movie again and realizing that the sequence was even in there. I basically forgotten about mm-hmm. it. Um, I haven't seen this movie since it came out, and just ha- how important that is to for my investment in Max and also for you know the end of the movie like you were saying brian like even though we haven't seen her since the very first act i, I really really care like i the ending it means a lot in a way that you wouldn't expect from a character coming back from you know hour and a half ago mm-hmm. so it does a lot
1: and it's cool because as you were talking as you mentioned earlier michael it comes before the inciting incident, technically, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you think about the inciting incident of the movie, when is when Vincent gets in the cab. It's actually before that, and it it feels like an interesting puzzle of screenwriting because you have to introduce her. Michael is now going to argue may that maybe she is the inciting incident. I think that's a, I think that's arguable, but
0: no, I'm 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 pond- I think it's a really interesting thing that you're bringing up, and so I'm processing it as you're talking.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just it feels like I can. I can like picture myself being Stuart Beatty or sitting in a room with him or, you know, working on development of this and talking about like, okay, well, we have to have her earlier, right? She can't just show up at the end and we need this connection. We need it for the character arc, da, da, da. But it does mean that we have to delay the inciting incident of the movie until further in. And how do we keep it like engaging and make it worth it? Um, And so that actually brings us back to the like kind of almost prologue that a bunch of the um, we spent a bunch of time on um, in the video that you wrote, Brian, mm-hmm. which is all of the characterization of Max preceding when, when Vincent gets in the car with him. There's a lot before he even meets um, Annie. Then he has this whole section where we see kind of character work going on in this conversation with Annie. It invests us enough in Max as a character that we're not looking at our watches going, when is the inciting incident? When is the inciting incident? It's pretty slow in terms of like a first 15 pages of a thriller. What is going to be a thriller? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's very, very well designed and I think it does keep us hooked in enough. And of course we kind of like, you know, have some sense that it's going to go real bad because we do have that like preview where we see, you know, Vincent and Jason Statham, which is
3: <laughs> right. What a delight! <laughs> like the first person you see in this movie,
4: it's yeah. Jason Statham. yeah. Enjoy LA. <laughs> that
3: that
0: really is an interesting observation that it that it, it's you you have that structurally you show Tom Cruise arriving, you have that moment, so it's like. Bad stuff's gonna happen. Don't worry. Right. And then you like really quickly get old world Max like cabbies. Mm-hmm. He's different. Like in that montage, it just happens in like a few seconds. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's actually very economical. Uh, and you have him with you know the annoying couple in the back to yeah. sort of like quickly show up. You know, set up that old world, and then it is almost like a like a soft inciting incident or something. Like mm-hmm. her showing up is a a potential place where there could be a change happening and I think that it's kind of doing that is also partially what makes it so interesting because you can tell this is something special and we know enough about what his normal night night probably would be that we understand that this is
1: right but because it's unclear how it's connected to the plot right I feel like that's also just a really interesting like you know when we think about a traditional inciting incident we think about because I agree with you I think maybe when she hands him her card. Right, that's like maybe the moment that's you could consider to be the inciting incident. W- when is something really different for the character, like a call to adventure kind of yeah. thing? Right, like well,
0: I, well, I, I feel like it could be an inciting incident for a different story. Like right, I, I feel like right, it, yes. that's right. kind of a thing. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, because yeah. I think I I find it interesting. A lot of movies have sort of two inciting incidents, and if we look at fractals, then maybe it's like the inciting incident for the act, the first act, and then the inciting incident for the mm. story. So for collateral, it's like you have Vincent getting into the cab, but then you have the the guy falling onto the cab. Like, well,
1: that's the end of the first act.
2: Sure, but I feel like a lot of times people say people call that the inciting incident they call that sort of they, like they push it really far and they say like it's the moment where now mm-hmm. there really is no point of return like at any point vincent could get out and go off on his way and and max would be none the wiser you know but it's that moment where like now this is happening i just feel like there's sort of these two different moments in some movies treat each one as maybe an inciting incident where some movies 10 minutes in like things are happening and things are going crazy and other movies like we take a long time to get to that moment but there's Mm -hmm. often like the sort of the 10 minute thing and then the 30 minute thing which obviously is a lot of times just the break into the second act but right uh, but just different movies handle them differently i think it's interesting to track for sure it's
3: interesting because michael and i are working on a screenplay right now and we've been we're at that moment in our outlining of the kind of break from act one to two and we've realized that our inciting incident is kind of like a range like Mm. we have have a thing that's kind of like a pre-inciting incident but then there's the thing that happens that like really is a point of no return but a thing has to happen before that to make that thing happen so it's sometimes the inciting incident isn't just this like one singular event it's kind of like a little period that causes the rest of the movie to happen or
1: i always phrase it to like you know, students and young writers as like, what makes this day special? And like, that could be, in, in this case, that is, you know, Annie getting into the cab. That is different for Max. Um, the way that it's connected to the rest of the plot, quote unquote, is not clear. But I think that that could be definitely argued that it's the inciting incident. I don't know. Mm. It's it's cool. Like, I don't know. It's just like a a very yeah. bold choice to drop this puzzle of the plot, you know, this puzzle piece of the plot in right here where it is, I wonder mm. if I wonder if Stuart Beatty had to like fight to keep it there, mm. or if they wanted to get Tom mm. Cruise into the cab earlier, kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Right, I think I think it's film crit Hulk who has uh, like a blog post about lots of different structural things, and he's kind of I don't know if it's him or not, but I read a blog post recently that was sort of attacking the idea of inciting incidents, and it was going a bit. <laughs> too far in my opinion where it's like a little bit in that territory of like nothing matters we shouldn't have names for structural things right and i'm like well no it's still useful but i think the thing that i was agreeing with is that oftentimes like 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 we're saying it can't sure. it's not just a moment it doesn't have to be a moment it can be like a series of events that culminate in a thing that is an inciting event in that character's life and totally. I feel like this is an example of a very extended series of events that all kind of together spin max's life off into this this craziness that is this this one night which is another thing we've mentioned it but like i just love that
1: yep it all contained Mm. in a
0: few hours like it's just it's so cool and what's yeah
3: yeah i've I've been saying a lot lately that it's just so nice to watch movies that are meant to be movies like yes just (laughs) just stories that like are meant to be told in two hours it's just really fun And this is a perfect example of that. Like there's no other form this movie belongs in besides that like classic two hour Hollywood film. Right.
2: There are movies that are that should be 70 minutes, but that are made to be 110 minutes because they we don't make 70 minute movies. And then there are movies that should be four hours that are that are put into two hour movie. Right. Exactly. You know, so it's nice when it's like this feels like the length it should be.
0: Yeah. And I do like just the, the last like kind of character beat moment that I really like that I've kind of more come to appreciate over time is that Max is going on this journey where he's learning to embrace his inner self and like, he's not going to be afraid anymore. And there's that awesome moment, you know, again, after Mark Buffalo was killed where he's driving yes. and he's just speeding up and like Tom Cruise is slowly losing control of the situation. Mm. And it like, you know, has that crescendo and then climaxes in like flipping the car. And that's such a cool moment because it's, it's Max being willing to die in in a way, or just mm-hmm. like he's he values life enough. I don't know; it's hard to explain. But I but I like that he has to go to this place where he's willing to lose everything because mm-hmm. that's what you need to do if you want to like right. change. Is like be willing to risk everything because it's it's about risk. And then immediately after that is when he realizes that Jada is the other the other target, and now it's like, well, now you have to go prove that you're willing to live like it's not enough to just be willing to die now you have to go show that you're willing to fight for the thing that you want and actually achieve it Mm -hmm. i I was i just love that that flow of things it affects me
1: yeah well cars are like convenient forms and symbols anyway right when you have somebody driving and somebody riding mm. because they become a metaphor for control anyway mm-hmm. so like it reminded me a little bit of like fight club you know where they're like on the freeway mm-hmm. and um tyler is driving i guess and uh, <laughs> <laughs> who that scene makes no goddamn sense um <laughs> also
2: they get out of opposite sides of the car i, I truly
1: that's the one where i'm just like all right. All right. Like, sorry. <laughs> we'll talk about Fight Club later, but- um... Pay the
2: self orchard, yeah. Build a house.
1: <laughs> it's like, who are you talking to? Because <laughs> <laughs> there's people in the back seat. anyway. But it reminds me of that scene because that's the thing about cars, right? Is that they are already metaphors about control, mm-hmm. right? They are already mm-hmm. metaphors about who is in control of the situation. And that's what part of what makes the- the entire approach to this so delicious and like clever because you have a disempowered driver for the entire movie he's technically in the driver's seat of his own life quote unquote but he's actually not Mm -hmm. everybody else is driving him they're telling him where Mm -hmm. to go it's this like layered metaphor already and then to like have it literally be the character's journey where he has to take control of his life of the car that he is driving that he has never ever been in control of for the whole movie (laughs) to like crash it and i think that's part of why it resonates with you michael is that there's there's like a built-in like symbolism to it anyway and so there's something so gripping when he really does start driving the car and it's only for a brief moment because obviously it's not sustainable and it creates this explosion, but it does tip us into that, that third act and, and towards the climax where we see now that Max is taking initiative.
0: And that, that he destroys the car and doing yeah. so also just to yeah mm-hmm. round out that metaphor. That's, that's cool.
2: The ego death. Exactly. <laughs> I also love just the, um, what Max's facade is, is just so relatable. You know, it's just uh, like we've all, I spent a lot of my twenties talking about the things that I would do if this one thing weren't standing in my way, when that one thing was stupid, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and, And, and I really like another 2004 movie, Shaun of the Dead, kind of a similar protagonist issue of not just taking control of your own life and sort of being, being in the driver's seat. But then they're in this genre of like this Big thriller action movie or a rom-com, where it's like, I think the reason I love both those movies so much is because even if we're living in this sort of hyper world like hyper almost like mm-hmm. surrealistic like this is we're in this is definitely a movie this is not something that's going to happen to you tomorrow right. hopefully <laughs> it still feels <laughs> like these are just very three-dimensional relatable characters who are dealing with the same things that i have dealt with and i know people who are dealing with and, and that kind of thing And i think that that's that's what i really love about the design of max in this is that it just feels so familiar yeah 100 percent.
1: i just love the moment where he doesn't Max doesn't get to eat his sandwich because the body falls on his car. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> He's like, I'm so ready and everything's I just, so neatly.
1: I love it when people eat in movies or like try to like, it's just so realistic and it's mm. such, such like a basic piece of business. I don't know. I have characters eating in my scripts like constantly because it's like, I feel like movies suspend unless someone's having a conversation in a restaurant, but even then they're not really eating, right? They're like talking to each other or whatever. Right. And eating sort of, like, becomes, like, this metaphorical, like, thing for, like, gluttony, where if we see a character eating, it's, like, he's a crime boss and he's eating lobster or something. And we're just, like, all right, we get that. That's a character thing. Right. And it, it is, I guess, a character thing where his sandwich he doesn't get to eat his sandwich and it falls all over the seat next to him and whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I just, because it is about, like, he doesn't even have control over his dinner, right, in this case. But it's just, like, a really relatable like grounded <laughs> awesome moment
3: two things i want to know <laughs> what brad pitt eating all through ocean's 11 means to you yep. symbolically <laughs> and second i think in the dark knight literally there's a cab driver about to eat a sandwich <laughs> when bruce wayne and rachel fall into his cab mm. i think it's like they cut to the cab because he's about to bring a right. sandwich up to his mouth Ugh. so now i know we are christmas i mean dark idea. knight
2: was based on on Ma- Michael Mann movies. Michael we Man talked about movie, that. Yeah. yeah, there you go.
1: And it does it does add a note of humor. And I think that that's kind of what you're talking about. So, so often, you know, like we'll see a cop spill coffee on himself or whatever, like in sort of a fumbling way that mm-hmm. creates a note of humor. And I actually do think it, the sandwich does that in that scene because otherwise yeah. we'd be probably so horrified, right? Like the body falls <laughs> onto the car. Maybe we would not find it funny. Although Tom Cruise's delivery of, no, I shot him. The whatever the fall,
4: thank you. The bullet of <laughs> the fall. Yeah, time. yeah,
1: yeah. So yeah. there is obviously there's some comedy in it anyway, but the sandwich really amps up the comedy. I feel.
0: <laughs> uh, okay, well, so we know what Trish's lesson is then from this movie. Does anyone I have else want to?
1: <laughs> so some of my favorite podcasts that we've ever recorded are actually our patron exclusive podcasts. For some reason, I think it's because our patrons have really good taste. We often end up talking about really great movies over there that we otherwise probably wouldn't get to talk about. We
0: also get to swear there a little bit which is true.
1: (laughs) There's a little bit of an (laughs) unvarnished... ...thing that happens over on Patreon.
0: Excellent word choice.
1: To be honest. But we recently talked about The Prestige, which was so much fun, and mm. we all really love that movie. We talked mm. about Her. We did a podcast on Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, which ended up leading to a video because we just discovered so many cool things about it as we were discussing it. Mm-hmm. And over there on Patreon is also where our Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse podcast lives, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and No Country for Old Men... There's a lot, and we're doing new ones every month, so... If you want to be a part of this and get access to all of these patron-exclusive episodes, join us over there on Patreon. We also love getting to talk to people on Patreon and interact, and the voting is always really exciting. So it's shaping up to be a really fun community over there. Please join us.
0: Yeah, you don't just get access to them. You get to vote on which episode we're going to record out of a bunch. So yeah, it's fun. It's fun to watch that happen.
2: Which is always neck and neck, which is hilarious to watch every time.
1: Well, we also sort of diabolic (laughs) publicly stack, (laughs) try to stack our monthly votes to try to (laughs) confound. I don't know. (laughs) as hard as possible. Well, we we pick things we want to talk about anyway, but sometimes they're really varied. So anyway, join us over on Patreon. Uh, It's only $2 a month. It really helps support the channel. And we have a lot of great exclusive episodes.
0: Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Collateral. Alex, you kind of gave us a a preview. Do you
3: want to uh, continue (laughs) your thoughts? Sure. I mean my lesson is I kind of actually want to go back and learn more about the lesson, but I really just want to study that sequence with Annie and Max uh, at the beginning of the film because I think it's always been a challenge for me when I used to want to make really overambitious expensive short films that took place in 20 locations and people would be like, "Why don't you just do like a, a simple one like in a room with two people talking?" Like that's boring. Like I I have so much more ambition as a director, but it's like That was one of my favorite parts of the film. And it was literally two people talking in a car for a while. And it had an arc. They had, you know, they had kind of facades up in the beginning. She's presenting herself one way. He's asking her kind of questions about what he wants to know about her. Uh, They're kind of poking each other to see what they can get out of each other. And then it ends in this very vulnerable moment. And this act of kind of like kindness where he gives, he gives her his special like, you know, Mm -hmm. vacation picture. And, to take me on that full arc with just two people in a car uh, is so impressive to me. So I I want to know more about what's going on beneath the surface in that scene that just you know makes me love these two people so much.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think as a message to uh film school Michael and Alex there's definitely <laughs> directing in cinema happening yes. in that conversation like right like we were talking right. about like the cinematographer like all that stuff is there it's just right. not like dancing in front of you and trying to call attention to itself right it's not look at me i'm a director right yeah <laughs> um cool trisha beyond sandwiches lesson
1: there is nothing beyond sandwiches um i want to talk a little bit about agency um this is something i've been just thinking about lately as i watch movies um and and we traditionally talk about agency to mean like does a character have the ability to affect the plot essentially like does this character's choice matter and one thing that i think makes collateral so cool is that basically every supporting character does have agency like even down to so Mark Ruffalo, we talked about and, he, you know, it, it ends up being his agency that gets him killed right in that crucial moment. But Javier Bardem, who is awesome in this movie. Right.
3: We didn't like, mention it. it him. We didn't mention him.
1: I know.
4: Like,
3: the, like, the, what, what's it name? The, the Dark Santa Claus? Be- Pedro, Santa Claus. Pedro Negro. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like that story is so wonderful. And the, just him delivering it. It's just made me so happy. Yeah.
4: yeah.
1: We understand perfectly that what he chooses to do in that scene will determine basically like Max has to act as well, but Felix has to make a choice that will affect even down to the jazz musician who, who ends up, you know, getting killed. He has choices to make and they have outcomes, right? Like it actually isn't the script really wisely places agency into the hands of these various characters even Annie at the end has agency where she's being hunted and everything, but what she chooses to do, like go up to the other floor and whatever, like ends up affecting the plot. And even down to those two muggers, like they, they could like help Max. He's asking for help. And instead they decide to get themselves killed. What the cops decide to do that pull them over. They have the agency, you know, to an extent. And like, I just think it, it makes the world feel lived in, you know, and it's part of the reason why I think this feels like a, a very vivid portrait of Los Angeles, because the people that Max and Vincent encounter are people and they have their own motives. They have their own things going on and you get the real sense that they can affect what happens to Max and Vincent. Um, you know, and part of that is the illusion of really good screenwriting, you know, obviously they, they don't, Really can't really make decisions other than the ones that they make. But the fact that choices are set up for those characters to make creates that sense of like a real built out world and creates the tension that I think ultimately like simmers underneath of this and keeps it going.
0: Yeah. The illusion that comes from good screenwriting. Exactly. The illusion of, yeah. No, (laughs) no, no. no. (laughs) It's really good
1: screenwriting. It's the illusion of choice that comes from really good screenwriting.
0: And all of that reminded me of another thing in the making of there's a moment where, you know, they're talking about working with Michael Mann and Jada's like, if you line in the movie, if you have one line and it's like, stop or something, Michael Mann's going to come up to you and he's going to tell you where you were an hour ago and what's going <laughs> on with your life and like what you're trying to do. And and it, it's also reminding me of what we talked about in the No Country podcast of of these side characters feel, feeling lived in and like they have their own lives. Yeah. And I think mm. it's, yeah, it's just a really good point. That that's, What makes this world feel believable so that you get uh, invested in it and and, in this really honest?
2: I mean, it might just be Javier Bardem. Or. That
1: helps too. (laughs) As long as he's in
2: your movie, everybody else will be believable. Never a bad
0: choice. Yeah.
1: I mean, for real.
2: Awesome. Brian? So something I realized, I think while watching Collateral, maybe for the first time or probably down the road somewhere, is how drawn I am to movies with two diametrically opposed main characters as opposed to sort of more traditional like there's a hero and there's a villain we know who we agree with Mm. or like maybe black panther where it's like well we kind of empathize with the villain but like there's still a villain in like a very villainy kind of way you know sometimes it's a hero and villain sometimes it's just two leads fight club one of my favorite movies uh you have these two characters who are obviously designed to be complete opposites of each other for very clear reasons Weirdly, Michael Mann does this all the time with Collateral Heat, The Insider, Public Enemies, like mm-hmm. just two men who just totally disagree on stuff, but you're kind of not always sure whose side you're on or who you agree with. Um, True Detective Season 1 is an amazing mm-hmm. version yes. of that. Seven with Mills and Somerset, Will Goodwill Hunting, mm-hmm. Will and Sean, like just two characters who are, they're both flawed and they're both wrong and they're both right. Uh, and it just makes for endless ways to explore the theme. And I think it makes it more challenging for the audience because you're not, you know, if you, if you look at like the things that Vincent says in this movie, you're like, Oh, you're you're not wrong about this and like like you're sort of like right. looking at max and all the things he's doing wrong with his life and then you're hearing vincent say here's what you should do and it's like oh crap oh swingers yeah. is another one like i love it. <laughs> the ending of swingers is like john favreau <laughs> Favre realizing that vince vaughn has been full of crap the entire time but yeah. like he's been sort of giving him his advice and i just think that a lot of times we as an audience are comfortable in watching our hero knowing that we're on their side and we agree with them and then watching this villain who we know we right. don't agree with and i think movies are so much more interesting and so much more challenging to the audience when when everybody has a really strong really good point of view and everybody is pushing each other in different ways and making mm-hmm. us think about what our take on that on that theme is definitely yeah absolutely
0: and 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 to kind of piggyback off that, that's one of my takeaways too. Is is sort of what we talked about in in the videos that having those characters, like you're saying, having a protagonist and antagonist that have these different kind of moral stances or viewpoints, also lets you. I, I think it helps. Thinking about it, not those terms helps me as a writer remember that the movie is here to teach the protagonist a thing, assuming it's you know a positive change arc or whatever, mm-hmm. and that having a an, an antagonist that is the opposite you know that's not there just to be like ooh, edgy like he's totally different and now they're going to argue about things right but i think in collateral they're teaching each other about yeah like life and like that's what like movies are supposed to be i feel like there was a moment where i was also thinking at one point of like collateral versus inside out i think was an idea <laughs> that i had in my head <laughs> because they're both like Protagonist stuck with the antagonist, and like the like protagonist has to learn from the antagonist, and all these things.
3: But they don't shoot each other. They don't. Yeah, yeah it's a
0: very very different movies. But again, this <laughs> yeah. this structure of make your protagonist have this flaw that we can empathize with, like you were saying earlier, Brian. It's this very relatable thing that Max is dealing with, and then there's this crazy situation, and he's paired with someone that is the opposite, and because of their situation, he's going to have to learn like a new way of living from this person. Mm-hmm. And I think just remembering that that is, you know, the, the bigger purpose often in a story is to teach those life lessons is, is important. Mm-hmm. And this movie shows how entertaining it can be while also doing that. So, <laughs> thumbs up collateral. Definitely one of my favorite movies I've decided.
1: Yep. Also yep. the coyote. If mm. you can just like capture something that like is an image of what Los Angeles is, right? Like the wildness of, a coyote roaming the streets at dawn is kind of perfect. Mm -hmm. And
0: I think what's cool about that is I remember when I first thought, I was like, that's super weird. Why is there an animal in Los Angeles? And then you move to Los Angeles. (laughs) And and there they are. (laughs) Right. And so it, it is that weird, like actually authentic thing that might seem weird to people that don't like understand what Los Angeles is and where it is and that we are right next to the wilderness in that interesting way.
3: And it's just so weirdly perfect to have, like, a gray coyote. Like, with Tom Cruise's with Tom hair! Cruise, <laughs> with, like, the gray suit and the gray hair. It's, like, it's like the perfect, like, animal totem for it. Right. right.
1: And, and the <laughs> lack of a backstory, right? Like, we assume that Vincent has a backstory, but, like, we don't get to really know much of what it is.
4: Mm-hmm, and right. so, like,
1: because he tells us that bullshit thing where he's like, yeah, I shot my dad. And then it's like, none of that's true. But, yeah, that mysteriousness of, like, something wild that you just encounter that changes you. Yeah. It's kind of, it's great.
0: Yeah. Cool. Why don't we go around and say what we've been uh, watching recently? I'll start. I've been watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Nice. I am now done with the first season. So, I'm still we're still making our way through it, and it's really interesting because the writer director Amy sherman i've I've heard a lot about obviously Gilmore Girls and like her writing style and how Sorkin's style is very similar to it. and so it was interesting. I'd never seen Gilmore Girls, so this is my first exposure to her oh welcome it's it's cool it's It's weird seeing how similar those kind of two approaches to dialogue are. I have these like complicated feelings with Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Overall, I really like it there's this kind of tonal style mishmash thing that's sort of happening that like some of the choices being made like i feel like the all of them together don't necessarily all point and do a cohesive thing Mm -hmm. but they're all really interesting in and of themselves and at any given time enough of the choices are like overlapping and doing a really cool thing that it's it's really engaging uh, and like the performances are really good. And I really have yeah the same kind of love for some of the scenes that I do with Sorkin and some of the things that bother me about Sorkin. I feel like are sort of bothering me here. But overall, it's just it's mm-hmm. a really cool like I have never seen a show like it before. And that's really yeah. cool. And so I'm very much enjoying that. And Rachel Brosnahan is amazing. And always I feel like I'm Tony Shalhoub. Or like, I would want to be him.
3: <laughs>
0: I, just, I have a strange kinship with him. You totally are. It's so it's, true. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, so I'm I'm excited. We just started the second season. So I'm excited to see where it goes. And okay. that one guy looks just like Jake Gyllenhaal, kind of. I don't know. Yeah. He's, like, he's very, it's one of those people. Where I'm like, you are handsome. I get that. I get this one. <laughs> right okay. Anyways, that's that's my report on, on the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel.
2: Nice.
3: Alex, what have you been watching? So last week, uh, my husband and I watched Hillary on Hulu, which is the four-part docu-series uh, by uh, Nanette Burstein, and it was really interesting. I mean, I, like everybody else, have a preconception of Hillary Clinton and the Clintons and the whole Clinton thing, you know? It's just, like, such a part of our American culture, and especially if you were, like, a kid in the 90s like I was, like... It's just kind of this hazy, weird, scandal-filled, like, what even was all that? Um, I remember my parents, like, ushering us away from the TV when, like, (laughs) the Monica Lewinsky scandal Mm -hmm. was, like, coming on the news. Mm -hmm. So, basically, like, there's always been this weird, like, the Clintons are this weird thing. I think it's a worthwhile documentary to check out for anybody because we all have an idea of the Clintons and Hillary Clinton in our mind that's been put there by culture and everything that's happened the last you know 30 years or whatever and it is an interesting perspective of you get hillary herself you get the people that are around her you get journalists who've covered her throughout her career and you know it's obviously it's telling that side of the story it's 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 not a neutral documentary necessarily but there's a lot of historical context given for like the hillary clinton thing like what she means like who she was to so many who she is to so many people mm-hmm. through th- these different moments the kind of feminist moments in recent history so yeah very worth watching especially if you're a dude and maybe don't get some things mm. uh, it's it's good it's good to get them nice yeah brian what have you been
2: watching so keanu reeves has been in a few trilogies in his time Mm hmm. He's even been in more than one science fiction trilogy where he has to race to a telephone in order to be zapped away at the last second in order to avoid danger. <laughs> but of those science fiction trilogies, only one has a satisfying, dare I say, most excellent third installment.
1: Wow. <laughs> you really went there. You just wow. went for the whole thing. I did.
2: <laughs> I, I watched Bill and Ted Face the Music on Friday, the, the day it came out, and I loved it so much. Is it a great movie? I don't know. I don't care. I was just (laughs) so happy watching. I couldn't believe it was actually happening. And it just sort of felt, it felt like I was watching a Bill and Ted movie in a really surprising way. Samara Weaving and Bridget Lundley-Payne play their daughters and they're fantastic. Just like give exactly the performances you would want from Bill and Ted's daughters. (laughs) And, And honestly, of all the like decades later sequels, it's the only one that just really feels like like they got it to me like it just felt like i was Mm. watching the next movie that just happened to be made 30 years later you know like obviously there's blade runner 2049 which is a complete revamp total different thing it's not trying yeah Uh, well sure but i mean but i'm saying like indiana jones like crystal skull you know you just have these these movies where it's like we're gonna go back and do it again with the same people and it's like but it just doesn't feel like i'm watching that anymore and this this just felt for better for worse however you feel about bill and ted this absolutely feels like a bill and ted movie in a way that makes me incredibly happy
0: awesome nice i don't know that i've ever Seen the originals all the way through. Oh, wow. I think I've seen the first one, maybe. So we're I'll
2: adding it to our Patreon vote list, whether you like it or oh. not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. I like
0: it. Trisha, what have you been? writing recently.
1: Oh, funny. You should ask, Michael. (laughs) The thing I'm going to plug this week is my very own book that just came out today um, or on the day that we are recording. And um, I spent uh, quite a long time working on this book. It's a nonfiction biography of an early female pilot who flew the airmail. She was one of the first women to fly the airmail. And then she actually flew with the women Air Force Service pilots who were... They were a squadron of about 1,100 women that, that flew military aircraft domestically during World War II. And their entire story, if you know anything about them, is fascinating and inspiring and also tragic. Um, because they were women serving their country um, during the war, and they weren't recognized at all by the United States government. They were towards the end of the war, but not at the very end of it. They were very um, unceremoniously disbanded and, and sort of dismissed and didn't receive any veteran pay or status even. They weren't, their contribution to the war effort was in no way acknowledged. Wow. Um, and And a lot of them... N- never really flew again after that because there weren't flying opportunities for female pilots. Commercial airlines took like 30 years to hire female pilots Jesus. after that. <sighs> um so her story uh the story of the the woman that I wrote about her name is Nadine Ramsey. Her story had fascinated me from the minute that I heard it. Um back in 2017 I was hired to write a book about her. So uh, it was quite a long journey. I could talk about it for <laughs> ages and ages, but I won't. I just want to share with all of you guys uh, that I'm very happy to announce that it's out now. So it's called Taking Flight the Nadine Ramsey story. My co-author is actually a living relative of the woman that I wrote the book about, Raquel oh, wow. Ramsey. Hmm. Mm-hmm. She is the widow of Nadine's uh, brother. So... She is an amazing woman all on her own. And it was amazing to work with her. And you can get the book now. It's out on Amazon and we'll put a link in the show notes. So, yes, that's what I've been doing this week. <laughs>
0: link in the show notes. I'm excited for my copy to arrive and dive in.
2: Yeah, Trisha, my copy hasn't shipped yet. Can you talk to somebody? And are you going to like sign them for us? Oh, like, definitely. We can do that, right? Please. Yes. Okay. 20 yeah, bucks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> for sure.
0: Awesome. Cool. Very exciting. Great. Well, this has been our conversation about Collateral. I'm going to try something new today where I'm going to read the credits because Ooh, we don't give okay. enough credit to the team here.
2: It's really true. You mean the entire credits of Collateral, the movie? Yes. Just... Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I have the whole scroll beginning here. Beyond the
0: Screenplay is produced by Vince Major. Our editor is Eric Schneider. I've been joined today by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand, Brian Bittner, Alex Cayotos. I am Michael Tucker. You can find all of our Twitter handles in the show notes. Feel free to reach out and say hi. Thank you to the patrons for supporting this show and making it possible. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you in the
1: next episode.
2: Bye. Bye bye.
1: Bye everybody.